I can't think of a better way to start off our, uh, our final message in this series about fear than a song that talks about money, right? Because some of the most central, most universal, most across-the-board experiences that we share are these fears and worries surrounding our money. Am I going to have enough? Will there ever be enough? Even if there is enough now, will there be enough later? What if there's some pressing medical need? What if I never get a job? What if I have a job and I lose a job? What happens if the economy tanks? What about my future? What about my present for that matter? Um, will I ever be able to get into and pay for college? After I get out of college, will I be so strangled by student debt that I'll never be able to get ahead? Can I make enough? Will it last? Will I lose it? And the fears go on and on and on, right? And all of them really fueled by one central fear, one central thing, and that is this, the fear of not having enough. The fear that whether it's now or whether it's soon or whether it's later on, there's going to come a time when I just don't have enough. And that possibility uh, runs like a fear through our veins. I want to harken back just a moment to the main verse for this series as we've talked about all kinds of fears that we encounter We've been looking at this verse in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And according to this verse, these fears that we have, and specifically this morning, this fear of not having enough, where does this fear come from? Well, according to that passage, we know where it doesn't come from. It doesn't come from God, right? That's not something that he is giving us. Those fears that we have about not having enough, they come from different places. And for a lot of us, myself included, they come from some point in our background where we didn't have enough, and that experience was very painful. When I was uh, seven years old, uh, I wanted to play Little League baseball with a few of my buddies, but my birthday kind of fell in the wrong place. So while they got to play up with the eight and nine-year-olds, eight and nine-year-olds, I was uh, unable to join them and play. And it was heartbreaking for me because I really wanted to. So my parents went and they talked to some people in the league office or whatever, and they, um, they kind of got the age requirement waived, and I got to play up with the eight and nine-year-olds. I was literally out of my league. <laughs> but my parents love me, and they care for me, and they're very encouraging people. And so all through the season, all I ever heard from my parents was, you're awesome. We think you're the best one out there. You're fantastic. And God bless them. I, I mean, they're wonderful people, but they lied to me. <laughs> and at the end of the year, they announced that they were putting together the all-star team. And having heard all these wonderful reviews about my performance, I said, surely I must be on that squad. And so uh, as a seven-year-old kid, I left my house. I walked to school where they're going to post the list on the wall of the all-star team. And when I got there, I realized they'd made a terrible mistake because my name wasn't on there. And I looked, and it wasn't there again. And so I went, and I found the coach. And I said, Coach, I was really hoping I could be on the all-star team. And I didn't see my name on the list. And this very nice man very gently explained that when they compile a list of all-stars for the all-star team, they look at a lot of the statistics because they need to make sure that as a team, they can produce uh, enough runs and enough hits and that they have enough uh, pitchers and fielders to make enough plays. And they compiled a team of the people who just gave them the most. And Scott, I'm very sorry, but when it came down to it, you just didn't produce enough. You, you didn't have enough. Can you imagine what that does to a seven-year-old? I know, all of a sudden I wanted to be in one of those leagues where everyone lives, everyone's a champion, and everyone's an all-star. But I wasn't. 
Someone that I respected was sitting there telling me, you're not enough. That's how I heard it. And I'm okay. It's been 30, 40 some years now, and I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. I don't want you to worry about me. Okay, I've got good friends, and they continue to support me, and my mom and dad still tell me I'm wonderful. So it's going to be all right. Don't want you to worry. But, you know, but what that produced in me early was this sense of, I'm a little worried I'm not going to have enough. So when it came time for baseball the next season, you know what I did? When the schedule came out, um, I, I made a list of every team that we were going to play and every stat that I was going to track. And I was going to keep track of all my stats, all my hits, and all my, everything I did all year. And I was going to keep track because I was going to make sure that I had enough at the end of the year. Now, they didn't have like Excel and spreadsheets and computers then. I was doing this all by hand as an eight-year-old. It was very complex and very accurate. And at the end of the year, do you know what happened? I had spent so much time working on my homemade spreadsheet and so little time actually out there practicing and playing baseball (laughs) that it turned out my fear of not having enough produced the reality of me not having enough. Like, if I'd have spent all the time I spent managing my fear of not enough, I might have been enough. But because I was ruled by the fear, I wasn't, and I didn't make it again. Fear has a way of doing that, right? Of circling around and producing in us the very thing that we fear, that very thing that could have been prevented if we could have just shut the fear up. So let me ask you about your fear and your fear of not having enough. Where does it come from? Maybe your experience was as a child, maybe it was later on. Maybe your fear of not having enough financially is actually Uh, has its root in some financial situations that were difficult. I don't know. But the fear of not having enough does not come from God. And this passage that we've been looking at in in, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, um, it actually gives us three things that God has given us to offset that fear. And it it lists them as power and of love and as a sound mind. And I want to look at these this morning as we relate them to this fear of not having enough. So first, with regard to power, God gives us power to strike down the fear of not having enough. See, one of the worst things about that particular fear is it makes us feel feel powerless. There's nothing I'm going to be able to do. I don't have enough now. I won't have enough then. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm just at at the mercy of this fear and this reality of not having enough. And the fear really acts like a bully. It just bullies us, and bullying only stops, as we know, when somebody steps up and confronts the bully and and calls his bluff and says, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And God, by his grace, actually gives us some weapons that we can use to stand up to the bully of this fear of not enough and say, we're not going to take it anymore. We're not going to be ruled by you anymore. Things are going to change. And with these, we can strike down the bully of fear. Now, I'll say in advance, there's no guarantee that you're going to love the weapons. I don't think David was absolutely thrilled with the weapons he was given to fight Goliath when you think about it. A few rocks against the monstrous giant. But he recognized them for what they were. He exercised them in faith and they produced something miraculous, right? These weapons that we're going to talk about, these weapons that we use against the bully of fear, you may not just rise up and say, I love that one. But if you'll recognize it for what it is and if we'll exercise it in faith, we will see some miraculous results. The, the first of these weapons is contentment. It's learning the lesson of being content with what it is that God has chosen to provide for you and for me. Paul wrote to Timothy elsewhere. He said, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and if we have clothing, we will be content with that. 
Because those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You see, what happens is contentment undermines the fear of not enough by redefining the whole idea of enough. Our idea of enough is mostly, it's defined by our selfishness and by our greed and by our ambition and by our comparing with what's out there and by what the world markets to us. And that defines for us what is enough. But contentment defines it differently. Contentment uh, uh, defines enough as simply being that which God has chosen to provide me with. Whatever it is that God has given me at this moment in time, at this station in my life, I can be content that that's enough because God who loves me is the one who's giving it to me. And in Paul and Timothy's case, he's saying, if we have food and clothing, that's enough, we'll be content. And I will say, this, I eat my flesh, I don't love that definition. That feels like it's setting the bar way too low for God's provision, right? Like he doesn't even mention shelter over my head. Paul says, food and clothing, bare minimum, we'll be content with that. Why? Because we understand that that's God's expression of his love and care right now. And we trust him and we know him. Contentment is something that goes hand in glove with the next weapon, and that is self-control. If we can combine contentment and self-control, we can really get up in the face of fear. Proverbs says that, a, that it's like a city whose walls are broken is a person who lacks self-control. When we lack self-control where our money is concerned and where our finances are concerned, it's like breaking open a hole in the wall that protects us and keeps us safe and invites the enemy to come in and to plunder and to, and to take back off with anything that we might otherwise have possessed. When we exercise financial self-control, however, it's like having a life inside that is safe. What do I mean by exercising financial self-control? I mean things like st sticking with the old clunker because it's paid for, rather than upgrading to the newest model that way. I mean, I mean things like selecting the basic package rather than the premier package, right? Which is hard to do because there's like 800 channels out there and you want all of them. But we learn to live with the fact that, you know, the basic package has 100 channels. And they're all horrible too, but like, we can live with that. It's going to be okay. Or maybe even, you know, heaven forbid, we, we cut the cable and we, and we don't have any at all, right? Or any of those kinds of choices where we say, we're going to exercise some financial self-control. Um, sometimes for me personally, it means making a cup of coffee at home rather than going out and get the really good stuff at a higher price elsewhere. That's my own personal sacrifice. I've got to live with that. But it happens all the way. But here's the deal. When we exercise financial self-control at any level, at the cup of coffee level or at the new car level or anywhere in between, when we exercise financial self-control, it's like sticking a knife into the back of the bully of fear. And if we can, and if we can combine that self-control with contentment, uh, we overcome the greatest weapon in the fear's arsenal, and that is the fear produced by financial debt. Because self-control and contentment are the antidote to debt, right? Where we are content with what God has provided and are self-controlled not to extend our spending out beyond that, we find ourselves in a really healthy place. And the fear of not having enough melts away. The first weapon is contentment. The next is self-control. And the third one is this, generosity. Generosity, being open-handed and outgoing with our resources. In the Old Testament, God described what he wanted his people to do about the reality of poverty around them and addressing how his people should treat the poor who were in their land. And he said, give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. And then because of this, Lord your God, he will bless you in all your work. 
and in everything that you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land, and therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and who are needy in your land. He doesn't just suggest it or merely instruct it, but he says, I command you to be generous, to be open-handed to those who are in need. And generosity takes all kinds of forms, right? Uh, It means offering to the poor and those who are in need and helping them at a point in need. Right, this thing that we're doing about helping uh, food insecure kids uh, get through a weekend and have some food, that, that's an expression of generosity to those who are in our land and who are in need. Generosity could look like uh, faithful, faithful, generous giving and tithing here at the local church. It can, look like the, it can look like the way that we behave when we're at a restaurant just out throughout the week and we decide, how much tip am I going to leave? That can be an expression of generosity, which, by the way, if I can just take an aside here, you know what our reputation is, Right? in the food service and in the restaurant industry, they beg to get out of the Sunday afternoon shift. Why? Because the reputation that we as Christians have, right or wrong, is that we're a group of people who have gone to church, given whatever extra we have there, and show up with the restaurant barely able to pay the bill, so we pretty much lay the tip aside. And shouldn't it be just exactly the opposite? I mean, shouldn't what the world encounters in a group of Christians walking out of church and into the world, shouldn't what they encounter be people who are willing to bless the world with a generous heart that reflects the generous heart of the God that they were just worshiping a few minutes ago? That's what generosity can look like. We can also be generous with our time and and the time that we give to invest in people and to share with people and to be with them as friends. There are lots of expressions of generosity. But when we are generous, we disarm the bully of fear. We take a stand and we say to fear of not having enough, I'm not afraid of you. And if we take that stand often enough and regularly enough, the bully will always back down. Because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. We have the power to do something about that fear. And we do it with generosity and with self-control, right? And, uh, and with contentment as well. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and also a spirit of love. See, God gives us a love that is greater than the love of money. There's just something, you know, the, the song actually reflects on it. There's something innate that we understand that we kind of need some money, some amount of money to work in this world and stuff, but our hearts get attached to that very quickly. But God calls us to a love that's even greater than that, a love that is greater than the love of money. Writing to Timothy, Paul said, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For, he says, the love of money The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, in fact, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many griefs. And mind you, what he's saying is money is not the problem. Money is an external object that's out here. It's the love of money. The problem is in our heart, that we attach our heart too closely to anything or to any object or any person or any amount of financial resource that's out there. And what Paul is saying is that when the attachment of our heart is uh, too tight to the money and the finances that are out there, it produces dangerous things, and God calls us to a higher love than that. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and you'll love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. But then he names them and he says, you can't serve both God and money. 
You're either going to love God most and money's just going to have to follow after or you're going to end up loving money most and God will just have to take his place in line. But you're going to have to choose which way it's going to be. It's a very direct statement. It's either God or money. They can't share first place. There's not going to be a tie. And we have to choose which one, which reality is going to shape our destiny and our character and our conduct and our lifestyle and our worldview and all of that. And after we choose that, everything else takes second place and it takes a back seat. So if I choose to love money first and best, then I won't be content until I've hit my number, whatever that number may be, right? And I'll be self-controlled only if and when I absolutely have to. And I will be generous only when I can afford it because I'll be putting money first. But if I choose alternatively, if I choose to love God first and best and allow the fear of money to take second place to that, if I'm choosing God uh, first and best, then I will learn to be content with whatever he provides. And I'll be able to exercise self-control anytime. That means maybe I'll be looking at something and I realize I can afford the monthly payments, but I still might pass on the purchase. Why? Because I'm exercising self-control. I can be content, I can exercise self-control, and I can be generous anytime with what I have. Not just when it's comfortable and sometimes even when it's uncomfortable. But all of that, the ability to do that, is the result of a choice that we make that we say we're going to love God first and give him first and best. And that choice, the choice to love God over loving money and our own self-interest, let's be honest, that's a choice. It cuts against the grain of our human nature. It does not come naturally for us. That last line in that song that Dylan sang, right? Everybody's got their reasons. Finer wines or fairer seasons. But if we're truthful, we're all fools for making money. We, there's something in all of us that it just is attracted towards that sense of security that we have enough. The decision to lay that fear aside and choose to love God first and foremost, above and beyond that, that cuts across the grain. We need God's help. We need His strength. We need the power of His Holy Spirit flowing through us in order even to attempt it. They asked Jesus, as you know, the greatest commandment, right? What's, of all the commandments, what's most important? And he summed up all the Old Testament instruction by saying, it's most important to love God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. He said, but don't stop there because there's another commandment that goes right along with it, and that's to love others, okay? To love your neighbor as yourself. And there is something, let's be clear, there's something about loving God that undermines our fear about not having enough. Because when we love him, we get to know him. And when we get to know him, we understand his heart towards us and we get to trust him. And, it, and our love and our trust in the God that we know undermines the fear. And there's also something about loving our neighbor and looking out for their needs rather than obsessing on our own. It takes our eyes off of our own situation and our own need and that undercuts our fear as well because we're not so stuck looking at our own situation. What does loving our neighbor look like? What does that look like? It looks like the story of the Good Samaritan. That's when they asked Jesus, what does that look like? He said, well, he told them the story about the Good Samaritan and, the, and Samaritan and these people passing by just this person in need, the, the person in need. That was it. And the person was there and in need in front of them. And the Samaritan who was um, kind of at the other end of the spectrum uh, on any scale, he was kind of 
ethnically um, different. He was religiously different. He was socially different, probably uh, economically different than, than this person he saw beat up on the side of the road. But, but he cared for them. He exercised care, took time, went out of his way, actually took money that he had set aside for his trip, right, and said, here, using these resources that I have, uh, he put this man up at the hospital in the hotel, said, take care of him, meet his needs, and when I come back, I'll pay you if there's any more. Um, the good Samaritan, what Jesus said uh, loving your neighbor looked like was using the resources at your disposal to address the immediate need you see in front of you. And here's the thing. In order to do that, in order to be ready and prepared to meet the need that's in front of us, we need to somehow create some space in our, in our financial life and in our budget uh, to be able to do that, right? Because it's one thing to be ready in our heart to step in and help. It's another thing to be ready in our wallet to step in and to help. And God calls us to be a people who are not just willing to step in and love our neighbor, but who are also ready and prepared. And that, and that requires us to be done in advance with the fear of not having enough. To be able to say, whatever I hold, whatever I possess, whatever, uh, whatever I hang on to, these are God's resources to distribute as he sees fit. And in this case, it means addressing a particular need. God gives us um, against the fear of not having enough. He gives, us, uh, he gives us power. He gives us love. And he gives us a sound mind. God actually gives us a sound mind to change the way that we think about money. Inherent in that statement is this realization that the way that we think about money naturally is inherently wrong. Our natural, natural inclination is to think wrongly about money. Jesus knew this, and so he said, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, he says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermins don't destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasures there will your, your heart follow. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, I don't know about you, but um, sometimes my want to is really strong, but my actual doing of something is not so strong. So I want to be the person who's so fully devoted to Jesus, who loves him so much that would do anything for him and would respond immediately and generously to any nudge that he was giving me, right, without question even if I knew it didn't maybe make tons of financial sense or even if I didn't have a lot of extra left over and stuff like that. I want to be that person, but it's hard because I'm not naturally in my heart that person. And, and the words of Jesus are really telling. He's, I think he says, we get it wrong. We think that if we can just get our heart there first, then our actions will follow. And on this one, he says, no, where your treasure is, your heart will follow after that. That's why it undercuts the fear so strongly. Because if we'll just get a sense of every last thing that I possess, I don't really own. Right? I mean, that's maybe at the heart of this, is that we think we own and we possess, but Scripture says that everything on the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's just letting us use it for a while. Right? You may disagree with me. Look me up 300 years from now and we'll see who's right right? 
what, what God has given us to caretake on his behalf for a while, in terms of possessions and resources of time and money and everything else, he gives them to us, but they, they are his. He entrusts them to us and says, here are some ways that I would like you to use those, that I would like you to invest those resources. Here are the kinds of things I want you to accomplish with those sorts of things. And we miss it if we think, well, as soon as my heart gets there, then I'll step into obedience with that. What Jesus is saying, that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That if I will just be obedient with those resources and do with them what God asks me to do, I will find that my heart follows after that, and soon my heart is in that place as well. Jesus went on and said this. He said, so do not worry, which is our natural state where the fear of not having enough is concerned. Do not worry saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and seek first his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. How does God want us to be related to whatever level of financial resource that he has entrusted to our care? Does he want it to be, us to be related to it by just a fear of, not, fear of it not being enough or fear of losing it? Or does he want us to have a relationship with our stuff that is, this is stuff that I can use to do righteous things. I can use whatever resources I have to expand God's kingdom, to seek first his kingdom, or to do righteousness, to do good things, to do the kinds of things with my money that Jesus was doing with his life when he was here on earth reaching out to those in need, healing hurts, binding up wounds, reaching out to those at the margins and on the periphery, and letting everyone know that God loved them and cared for them equally. I think God's calling us to a relationship with our money and with our financial resources that says, I ought to be using it for those kinds of things. And what rises up against that is the yeah, but, and the fear of, if I do that, there might not be enough. I just want to issue a call this morning to say that fear doesn't come from God. And I want to issue to us a call to step up to the bully of that fear and put him in his place by saying, I'm going to follow God's instructions. I'm going to love God first. I'm going to walk in the power that he's granted me. I'm going to learn to love in a priority where Jesus is first and to develop a sound mind to think about the things that I possess through the lens of what the Bible says, not just through the lens of what this world tells me. Would, would you pray with me real quick? Or at least let's start, would you close your eyes and, and just reflect for a moment? Because this is one of those messages that it's very easy to either, uh, you know, to speak from up here or to listen to where you sit and to agree in the mind, yeah, those are some good ideas, those are some nice thoughts. That's probably true. But if this morning is just all about some ideas, We've, I would say that we've all pretty much wasted our time. I want to suggest that this is a message that requires us to seek God and say, God, what very practical, what very concrete, very defined step are you asking me to take in my life with my money that addresses my fear of not having enough? And it will very likely be different for each and every one of us wherever we sit. But I want to take us to God himself and ask that God would speak to us and share with us how is it that he wants us to respond to, to this message today? And how does he want us to live it out this afternoon, 
into next week and moving forward into the rest of our lives. And I want to ask him that he would give us the courage to do that. So Lord, we come to you and we begin by acknowledging it's true. We are a fearful bunch. And the fear of not having enough really is something that we do wrestle with. And it probably reveals, God, uh, that we don't trust you as much as we should or know you as well as we need to. But God, we confess it and ask you to forgive us for it. But God, we certainly want to access these tools that you've given us for, uh, to get rid of this fear. And so God, this morning, as I've been sharing, you've been putting on the hearts and minds of each person here a response, something to do next, a way to change, a, a point of self-control, a point of contentment, a decision to love you more. Lord, even in this moment, would you be speaking to us what it is you want us to do? In our spirit, God, would you show us how you want us to be different tomorrow than we are today? And then, God, as we identify that thing, as we articulate that thing in our heart, God, would you give us the courage just to step up and do it? And as we do that, God, my prayer is this. Would you silence the voice of the fear that rises up? And God, make us a people who are truly fearless in you. Fearless with, this, with regard to money, but fearless in every aspect of our life as well. God, that's our prayer. Empower us to be your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.